In the first two seasons of our podcast, I chatted with Kate Leone, a journalist, single mom, and world traveler. Kate had never taken a self-defense course before, and we figured her questions were probably your questions too. So if you've been following along all along, thanks for listening. You can keep up with Kate on her podcast at RestoriaTherapy.com. For this season, it seemed like a good time to change things up a bit. And the new theme song you're hearing, by the way, is an excerpt from a song called Icarus Wish by Berlin punk trio Dead Sentries, who also happen to be my neighbors, and who are generously letting me use this track, which you can also find on Bandcamp. Anyway, I thought it was time to head out into the world, virtually speaking, and talk to other women and men in the universe of self-defense, self-empowerment, and martial arts. I'm talking to old friends, new acquaintances, and complete strangers. Yes, I do talk to strangers, because I can defend myself. But I might hang up on them, too. We'll see. So, if you've stuck with us so far, keep listening, keep learning, keep laughing. You never know who we're going to talk to next. Well, I do. Welcome to episode 50 of the Pretty Deadly Podcast. This week, I'm chatting with Ed Hines, a lifelong martial artist, student and teacher of Bagua, and a good friend of mine from Paris. Edward is one of the first people I met when I moved to Paris. At that time, he was running an informal trading group on Meetup that met weekly in the Jardin du Palais Royal, which sounds very glamorous, but the French royal gardens tend to favor dirt over grass for some reason, so it was pretty dusty. Edward and I became martial arts friends and then regular friends as well. For a while, I trained his kid in ninjutsu while I picked up some bagua from Ed. What is Bagua? Why do I do it? Bagua is a martial art. It's a martial art which has the physical appearance of walking around in circles and changing direction. The movement quality you would recognize, most people would recognize as being something like Tai Chi, but not necessarily as slow. As a martial art, we, we can get a bit more complex about that. So the very simplest way of, of, of describing the walking in circle is you want to get behind people and so you walk behind them or you step behind them. The the movement and the postures are very twisted and that twisting goes with the nature of how joints work in, in circles and spirals. You put a twist into your own body as you walk to help yourself become more balanced in an unbalanced position. And you also use that understanding of the twisting in the body to understand how to twist other people's bodies. So there's a, a inverse relationship to how, how things look sometimes. This is what my teacher would talk about as being yin and yang. So you see something as like, oh, you're using your twisting, circling movement to move faster and to, to have more power and to be more adept. But you're also using it for the opposite purpose, which is to make the other person slower, weaker, and less adept. So by understanding the strength of your position in your body through the peculiar particular movements of Bagua, then uh, you understand how to break down other people's bodies better. And in terms of moving around the back of people, sometimes you're actually pulling people so their back faces you. Again, these are yin-yang opposites. Do I go to the back or do I bring their back to me? Um, Just for listeners, when you're talking about the movements are, as you started out saying, the movements are very twisted. And some people may misinterpret <laughs> that. 
<laughs> so you mean literally physically twisted, Physi twisting, the, physically twisting the body, yeah. Twisting, twisting the body around its axis, twisting the limbs around the axis. Right, turning in the joints, using the full rotation of the joints and, and balance points in the body. So yeah. just, it's not twisted in the sense of being like, you know, a sick and twisted martial art, dude. Because they're all like that. Because they're all like that. And that, that now I remember actually what I had originally wanted to talk to you about. Um, more Bagua stuff and Kung Fu stuff and what makes it different um, and what makes it resonate with you. But one of the things that you and I kind of learned to connect over over the years that we've known each other is that issue of, you know, like sort of the legend and mythology and sometimes more meathead approach to martial arts, but more the mythological approach to martial arts as opposed to the more pragmatic approach and the, uh, you know, the, I think recognizing that sure, there is this can be a spirituality um, in practice in the same way of like, you know, meditation and movement, but so much of martial arts is built on and sold on these ideas of like myth and legend and especially coming from ninjutsu where people like to dress up as ninjas and run around the woods and, uh, you know, I don't know, sneak up on trees. <laughs> what? Sneak up on what? Golfers. Sneak up on golfers. Yeah. Why would golfers be in woods? Why wouldn't aren't they supposed to be on a golf course? Just makes it more challenging. You're uh, clear. Clearly, you are not a ninja <laughs> or a golfer. <laughs> or a golfer. <laughs> Good point. Um, okay, but back to Bagua. So, how did you um, find it, and what about it resonates with you? You didn't start with Bagua when you first started out in martial arts. You've been doing martial arts for a really long time, most of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I started, I can kind of think of my, my martial training in some ways starting with boxing when I was about 10 years old, which I did mm -hmm. for a few years and then some, some other kind of kung fu when I was about 12 years old, which I did for a year or two. And then I started doing Tai Chi when I was 15 years old. And that was inspired by a BBC series, which you can find a lot of on YouTube if you look called The Wear the Warrior. And every week there would be an episode on either a martial art or some related martial arts from a country. So China had two episodes internal and external martial arts. Japan had several episodes. Uh, India had episodes. So it was, it was a big kind of revelatory experience for me because I was interested in martial arts. All I ever heard about was judo, karate, taekwondo, kung fu was a kind of generic thing. Mm -hmm. Ninja too, actually. And so to discover that there were Indian martial arts was like, wow, or Filipino martial arts, wow. Right. Anyway. But one episode was set in Taiwan, which was the one based on internal martial arts, and that was the first time I ever saw blah, blah. And there was a particular demonstration of it by a young man, which was not very well explained, but it stuck in my memory because the movement was remarkable. And when I left university, I decided, oh, okay, I'm going to go to Taiwan and study Tai Chi. That's what I've always wanted to do since I started doing Tai Chi. And I got there and I met a man and uh, he, well, I started studying Tai Chi, but I met someone who said, are you interested in Bagua? And I went, yeah, I'm curious. I've never done any, but I, I'd like to find out more. And I was brought into a, a, his house. He was, a, he was an American guy who still lives in Taiwan. 
and there was a very small class and the teacher had an amazing movement quality and I was like, ooh, I'm, I'm, I'd like to know this. Several months of studying later, I realized he was actually the young man who demonstrated in the program, which got me into Tai Chi. And really? That far well. Yep. Really? I never knew this part of it. Actually, I didn't know most of the story. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so, wow, that's cool. After yeah, I cool. just after I just talked a whole lot of smack about like the mythology and <laughs> and now you're you're delivering it. Um, that's really cool. And so the teacher, the Bagua teacher, was low? Yeah, it's low. Okay. Right. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about him uh, and your training with him? So he's now 60-something. Can you just say his name? Because I don't say it. Lord Shu. Thanks. Uh, he was a student of the, the main person featured in the program, Hongi Shan. Mm -hmm. in the program where there were, who was, his name is Hongi Shan. And he did a lot of full contact fighting when he was younger. There were like, I think, four or five close friends who trained very hard together. And he became kind of champion of his weight class in Taiwan for a number of years. They mostly practiced Xing Yi, which is a little bit more direct than Barbara, but has similar movement principles. My teacher, he likes to say that, uh, if we, if we use a metaphor, then Xing Yi is, is mugging people. Bagua is burglary and Tai Chi is about being a con trick, a con man, a trickster. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's one slice of how you could explain them. Anyway, so he, he practiced Xing Yi, but he wasn't particularly big and he was interested in Bagua because it was more evasive. And he began to research with the, his teacher's classmates, and also he had military service in the south of Taiwan, and while he was down there, he, he trained with someone else from a different style of, of barber. Mm -hmm. So he spent a long time kind of trying to put the system together and, and, and to be very clear about all the components of, of the practice in a way mm -hmm. that many people from the school were. Right, right. Yeah, essentially, I think in a lot of in a lot of Chinese schools, people are taught in a very individual manner and some things are hidden or not taught at all. Some things are not learned at all. And he, he made a genuine effort to collect everything and think about it and reflect on it from a, a number of different perspectives. And he had the very important first perspective of actually fighting. So mm -hmm. it's very easy because Bagua looks a lot like dancing. Mm -hmm. to people and it's it's not obvious at all the martial implication of these movements which can often be very abstract looking so you know, that sort of general waving your hands around and spinning around and go, oh that doesn't look like boxing or karate or the things which we tend to to recognize as having martial content but because he, he could already fight it was much easier for him to 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 recognize how the things fitted together. That's nice. So he was able to to kind of create a bridge for people to make it more accessible, would you say? I mean, I think it's like um, when I look at that in terms of, of the way that I teach ninjutsu or even with Pretty Deadly, it's mm -hmm. um, which are 
martial arts techniques, but presented in a in a way that I'm I'm actually taking the fighting out of it completely mm. when we're when we're presenting the techniques and pretty deadly, but then also helping people show like, you know, this is where the connection is. Mm-hmm. So it's that's what I'm getting from you about the work that Lowe's done with. Essentially, I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, it, is it the same or similar to, to, to that or completely the opposite? But either way, it's clear. And I can see it both, both methods of being, both methods as being approaches of being clear. Because one of the things I see being a problem, and again, we can approach this from, from different perspectives, a problem teaching internal martial arts or teaching martial arts is that people, people have an, internal idea of what martial arts should be and so they they use their body in particular ways which may be less effective than the natural ways of using the body or often are less effective because they're looking for an aesthetic which they've seen in movies usually so what and, so go ahead yeah so they're looking for an aesthetic which they've seen in movies and is actually quite different from the reality of two bodies struggling against each other or with each other, or finding a better position in relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, I, I want to talk about that a little bit more, about your experience with people who start to train with you, who come in with, you know, as you, as you put it so beautifully, this idea of what they think martial arts is or what they think martial arts should be, regardless of the style. Mm-hmm. What ha- what has been your experience? What do you feel? I mean, you say that it's usually what people see in the movies, but how does that translate physically? Like, what do they tend to do? They tend to look for clear sensations of force in their body. So you'll see it. Like the, the, one of the kind of the classic aesthetics is kind of the karate kung fu style, where the movement's very crisp and clear and and accelerate and stop and accelerate and stop. And so there's the search for how do you accelerate something and how do you stop it and, and all of these things. And if it doesn't have that acceleration or stop, then is it a correct movement in the the, the mind of the person who's doing it? Mm. Whereas Barbara is often, we have acceleration, we have stopping, but it's more about maintaining an even flow. It's more about having a, power which is balanced rather than power which is expressed simply to one point or one place right and right. the power itself is not about what you feel in your body it's about the effect that you have elsewhere so mm-hmm. those are all things and with respect to how to how, how does that work with people well i think some people get frustrated and go off and do something else that's quite common mm-hmm. it's, it's often it's very common for people to be unable to yeah to see what's happening or to change change patterns which are already there for example i remember having someone who came for a few classes who had a like a western boxing background and in a basic movement which involves stretching a hand out in front of you then pulling it down to your hip he could pretty much only jab so Mm -hmm. his movement was so truncated he kind of couldn't bring his hand further down than his chest and he couldn't really bring it in front of him without turning it to, with a inappropriate timing for the, for the method. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it was very frustrating for him and he stopped. 
but so that movement was so ingrained in him that he couldn't do anything else. Now, you know, in some ways, it doesn't matter. He has a useful movement from a fighting point of view. He has a useful movement from a learning and art point of view. He needs to, or he would have needed to, to go through a lot of frustration and opening up his his mind to different possibilities of movement, which could have been great for him. But it's a matter of priorities. Well, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't you say it's a matter of priorities, but also being a matter of um, whether that's something you're ready to do or not, you know, right. and the sense of like, you know, I've met people in my training where they, they, they have kind of that superficial idea and I don't, superficial sounds really demeaning. So I don't mean it in that way, but this, that kind of movie idea of martial arts but they sense that mm -hmm. there's something more. Um, mm -hmm. And yet they're confronted with, with exactly the kind of thing you're describing with this guy who comes from the boxing background. Um, and although there's a desire to go through that frustration and the training and the learning there, and, and maybe it even is a priority, but the emotional maturity isn't there yet to do mm -hmm. it you know, or something else in their emotional lives or personal lives or financial lives or you know, whatever it is, is, is not balanced in enough of a way that gives space to be able to make that exploration. You know, I mean, I feel like it's, it's, it's easy to, um, I think it's easy when martial arts is a priority for you and, and you've incorporated it into your life in such a way that it's it 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 kind of manifests in every single movement um and in every single opportunity as it does for people who kind of end up you know again i don't want to say dedicating your life to martial arts but incorporating it to such an integrating it to such a degree that it's it really becomes part of the fiber of of who you are and, and the way that you live your life but i feel that other people may want that and may even strive for it but it also requires a certain level of maturity you know and i think when you when you start a martial art as a kid like you did um looking for answers in in, in one aspect or another that you needed at that time in a way even being you know a kid or a teenager with a certain level of emotional immaturity allows you also to have that openness mm -hmm. you know it's like emotional maturity is not a straight you know ascending line it's it's kind of up and down over the course of your life and i feel like when i entered martial arts um the emotional maturity was whether it was there or not it's really hard for me to tell but it was something that I was more open to because of the other circumstances that drove me to martial arts. Mm -hmm. You know, I think now if I were to join martial arts now, I don't know if I would, if I would be in that place, even if I saw that, Oh, this is a path I want to walk, but I don't know if I would have the emotional maturity right at this moment. Absolutely. I mean, from my perspective, I, I started doing this stuff or internal martial arts when I was 15 and I had this very romantic view of what it would be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I was, I was pretty sure I was going to get special powers and be invited. 
Well, right, you know what? You're, you're like right now. The sun is right behind you. I know. So basically, I so basically, you're like everything you're saying <laughs> is completely negating all the. Other. <laughs> it's really irritating. Are you French? <laughs> um, the yeah. So listeners can't see, but. Edward is sitting in front of a window and the sun happened to be shining directly into the camera. Um, so while Edward was talking about having special powers and becoming enlightened, he was basically just a giant ball of light talking on Zoom. <laughs> but now he shut the curtain, so he's back to being just a normal person. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well. so, yeah so exactly. So I, I had this idea that everything, you know, it was going to solve everything. It was going to solve everything. And it didn't, you know, solve some things. And then it became another kind of problem because it became my, my job, my living. And then the people doing it became a problem because, you know, how did I teach them or how did I kind of navigate the world of it? So martial art became full of problems for me. Mm -hmm. And so, for, you know, in, in many ways, I was very uh, disillusioned, possibly, I can say. And, and at the moment, I'm, I'm kind of, Am I re-illusioned or I just found some some different level of appreciation and maturity? I think it's probably that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I I think you know and I know after after following this for so long, and you much longer than I have, um that there's always some other layer, you know. I mean, I think your relationship with martial arts is the same as any long-term relationship, you know, you go through those periods of like, this is the best thing ever, you know, or, you know, and then that goes with other periods of like, you know, oh my God, why is this so difficult? Or, you know, why isn't this delivering what I wanted it to deliver? Why am I still X in my life? Mm -hmm. Why didn't it answer those problems? And also where are my superpowers? <laughs> where are they? Yeah. They have not arrived as far as I know. Yeah. Um, so what, what was it that, that, that drove you to martial arts? Tai Chi is kind of a weird thing for a 15 year old kid to choose. You know, yeah. I mean, usually 15 year old kids are like, yeah, judo. And, you know, they want something more physically aggressive. I mean, the way I remember it is that I was, looking for martial art when this series of Weather Warrior started. Uh -huh. And I think in many ways I was also, I was, I'm fairly introverted. I don't always fit in. I didn't want to fit in particularly either. I wasn't exactly a rebel, but I was definitely not wanting to be standard. Mm-hmm. I also played Dungeons and Dragons. I'm sorry, but standard sounds like a worse insult than basic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you also played Dungeons and Dragons. Go yeah. ahead. Anyway, so, uh, so the, the way that Tai Chi and the internal martial arts described in this program, it felt like compared to all the other martial arts, like higher, higher on the magical power thing. So I was like, yeah, it's just like Dungeons and Dragons, but for real, I can be able to have magic chi power and uh it's kind of ironic because my teacher and my teacher's school were very kind of pragmatic in their way but it was just 
again, one of those, oh, we have to describe this in terms of the slightly bizarre Western understanding of what she is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they did. And I was like, yes, I want that. So that was that was basically why. And then the actual, the way it panned out was I saw not long after that an advert in a newspaper for the British School of Tai Chi Chen. And I went along and I started the classes there. And the teacher was fairly charismatic and not necessarily amazingly ethical. I'm sure we'll talk about that at some other point. <laughs> or ethics is as a martial arts teacher. Um, so from the not particularly ethical and whatever he was doing point of view, then there was there was this idea of wow, still superpowers happening. Right? So he would have people bounce across the room with the slightest touch, kind of thing. Uh, Sometimes without a touch. One of those guys. Yeah, yeah, one of those guys. And in certain contexts, you can explain it, but you can't do that stuff to people who don't want it done to them. Anyway, but but what it did give me very very quickly was a kind of sense of quietness and peace and lightness which uh was amazing to me mm-hmm. it was it was really um you know it was pretty amazing to me and so that for me the actual effect on my body and the effect on the quietness of my mind in some ways was proof something was happening so i had kind of two proofs one which was bogus which is people bouncing across a room and the other mm-hmm. one which wasn't bogus which is i do this and i feel different and my mm-hmm. mind is quieter, and I feel like I can adapt to situations more, yeah, with, with less fuss, with less drama, with less fear. So Do you that think was, that's that's held steady over the course of your life in martial arts? Mm, I think parts of it, yes. I think there's parts of it which I would kind of get and lose and get and lose. And depending on where my attention was, really. Mm-hmm. So within martial arts, there's, it's very easy to kind of get comparative and competitive. Mm-hmm. And I saw this when I was, I, this became very clear when I first injured my knee because I was in a very competitive situation and training for full contact tournaments with people who were training hard several mm-hmm. times a day with me and then suddenly bang I wasn't in that anymore and I could go oh, look at that but basically there's there's shadows of this kind of all through many people who practice martial arts which is I have to be able to fight I have to have fighting or skill I have to be able to beat people I have to be better than people and if I'm not something is wrong there's something mm-hmm. wrong with me there's something wrong with my training and when when your martial training gets focused on that, then it develops skill in certain ways. And I, I think it's very hard for some people you know, to to have developed their fighting skill without aspects of that. But in terms of like personal peace, yeah, not so easy. Yeah, I, it's it's yeah, it's an interesting thing. I was watching a video of some martial artists they were mixing a lot of different styles um somewhere i don't remember where this was but there are people who were based here in germany and and i the, the, they were good you know i mean they were good at what they were doing it was mostly chinese styles it looked like um but there was something really missing 
you know, it was, it was very much outside of their bodies and it's, there was, there was no presence of that person, you know, in every single technique that I saw, do you know what I mean? So it was like, you know, it was like, yes, you technically, they were great, but that, that aspect of martial arts that I think people are looking for maybe even subconsciously when they enter this. I mean, I think there's plenty of people who are like, I want to go in and I want to get a, a black belt. And then I want to get more black belts and as many different martial arts as I possibly can and be the best. I want to go to Skull Island and I want to do blood sport and I want to, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I think um, that that's actually not the majority of people who are in martial arts for a long time it's it is that that looking for that that journey of the mind that internal journey that we take of self-discovery and in peace and balance and and not peace as well and imbalance and what does all that mean and how do you deal with it and how do you how do you adapt when you're feeling particularly unbalanced how do you still move and still move effectively um, whether that's emotionally imbalanced or physically imbalanced. So watching these, the, this video of these people who were really, really impressive looking on this video, but at the same time, you know, from a, a personal perspective, I'm watching them and I'm thinking th this is all, it's all like from the out, it's just all from the outside. Mm -hmm. Instead of from the inside out, it's kind of from the outside in, except except you can't learn martial arts. I mean, you can, you can learn the technical that way, but you don't truly learn it. I feel, you know, mm -hmm. that it really is an inside out kind of thing, even though, you know, we learn that through like punching and kicking shit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's an interesting and interesting aspect. So from Tai Chi um, to Bagua and now you are you run completely by yourself or no you have you do it with a friend that i bagua it's no it's essentially it, it's do i have friends yeah i have friends but you no have friends. I bagua is essentially yeah i have friends now i bagua is essentially it's it's me uh i i try and cooperate with people in in lots of different ways uh, well, in a few different ways, I have friends who are way better at cooperating with people and, and doing jointy things than than me. But basically, uh, I, I I run run classes at the moment online. Um, I have private students online. I have kind of coaching programs. So I'll probably at some point create a a proper saleable online bar bar course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You yeah. Can hear from my voice, so that's kind of like uh, it's it's tricky. But actually, the more I work online, the more I see that it, it's possible to 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 teach something genuine. But I think it really helps if you have some kind of one to one or yeah, one to one contact with a teacher of some kind, because it's so easy to not notice things and not see things in your own movement and practice and what's being shown to you yeah yeah i have a really i have that same obstacle in the sense of i mean i'm teaching online and and i adapted to teaching self-defense online pretty quickly when we went to 
um, lockdown in early spring, but I already had the videos from my app. So that was already there. But to simply have that be like a, you know, a webinar kind of thing where it's a one way teaching, it, it, I can't quite get my head around that. How is that supposed to work? As opposed to like now when I do online classes, they're always interactive mm-hmm. because I really want to be able to tell my participants, you know, make an adjustment here. This is what you would like to feel. I want to hear their feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, to do that one way seems really weird to me. Yes. Yes. And I, I think in some ways it's th- there's certain things which are probably better suited for projecting that one way direction mm-hmm. and other things which are less suited. But there's also the it's it's I think it's almost just like a a course or an app or something like that is from an, another way of thinking about it is it's like a net which is going off into the world which People will find their way back to you. Somewhere. Sure. And uh, I, I guess the business term is a funnel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, but you're right. I mean, that's why we have it. The, you know, yeah. the the app that we have is is to be able to reach a lot more people. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's not meant to be the end. I mean, if that's all you want to use, great. Mm-hmm. But you know, we do offer more than that. Mm-hmm. because it's not meant for my perspective it's not meant to be the end it's just it's meant to be the beginning you know mm-hmm. here's like here's the door you walk through um mm-hmm. not so much in the you know yeah i don't like the term funnel either mm-hmm. but it, you know it's so hard as you know teaching martial arts for a long time just getting people to get out of their heads of what they think it is from what they see in the movies and 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 preconceived notions that people have whether they can do it or not you know is another is always another thing I mean I know when I started I was 32 when I started and one of the things that I, I didn't question any of the things I was doing until we were learning something or I needed to learn something called Oten which is basically a cartwheel mm-hmm. of course as a woman I've done cartwheels when I was a girl that wasn't, you know, I was, but I hadn't as a 32 year old woman, I hadn't done a cartwheel in a really long time. That was the one thing that really got me. I was like, you know, I can't believe I'm actually doing cartwheels at 32. Now I'm 52 and I do cartwheels as part of our escapes when my, when I can, because like you, Mm -hmm. there's plenty of like wear and tear on the body, but it's a, these ideas that we have of like, you know, I can do something, I can't do something and, and trying to let people know that it's, it's the physical barriers really aren't as big as people tend to think they are because it's not about like, you know, putting your fist through a brick wall. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. (laughs) Unless you and I have just been missing the message the whole time. Can you imagine, like somewhere in the great like martial arts heaven, <laughs> when we die, they're like, guess what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you were doing it wrong the whole time. <laughs> that would suck. Mm. I guess not really, but yeah, it's a it's it's an it's an interesting journey, absolutely. So, what did you think? I mean, when you as you started to mature as an adolescent into an adult. 
and you know all these magical powers that you were seeking as it became like more and more evident that those those might not happen mm-hmm. <laughs> how did that feel you you felt disappointed you said well i think it was it was a gradual thing and then there were possibilities of reframing some of those magical powers in different ways i suppose and and also just an appreciation that there were different compensations. For example, when I went to Taiwan, I started training with law. I had gone from some very, in some ways, unclear instruction on martial arts practice to some, with law, very clear instruction on martial arts practice. And so I, I was kind of the, you know, no longer thinking that I had, this was going to necessarily give me magical powers, but I might develop transcendent skill which is slightly different or mm-hmm. you know amazing high levels of skill but like i certainly had the experience of of advancing in terms of skill very rapidly because of the hours i was spending in because of the uh the, the tuition i was getting mm-hmm. so that in some ways was a, a compensation for the lack of magical powers but also parallel to that i think there was a an increasing understanding of Again, this could came and went over the years of what's happening in terms of attention, breath. Yeah, attention and breath, well, attention really, which gave me the original sense of like peace and lightness and so on that I really appreciated when I first started Tai Chi and was like, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so that appreciation of the, the importance and the power of just your subjective state whatever whatever your ability to put your hand through a brick wall or to out sneak someone tactically or to move beautifully or whatever it may be mm-hmm. whatever external uh, manifestation of it is just what's it like to be breathing in this moment to be aware in this moment and that's that's a big part of, of martial practice and it's kind of it's folded into in quite a deep level deliberately folded in i would say to, to Barbara. um why were you looking for magical powers in the first place edward well <laughs> looking for magical powers in the first place because i was an awkward 15 year old and i thought that would be very cool um uh-huh. yeah and no, I, I think uh, like you know we we go into things for compensation of some kind mm-hmm. many many ways because we're not content with the moment we have some searching for a way of, of making it okay and that making it okay in my case was like i had to be a better fighter or i had to have you know some unusual look or mystic experience or whatever it may be mm. i might have told you this one but i remember someone came to one of my teacher's seminars and then by coincidence we met each other a few weeks later in crete where i was teaching the yoga center and he was a um he was there on holiday and we we got on fairly well and he was a, a musician who played the trombone and i i confided to him while eating one day that you know there are times when i see these people who are like you know, super accomplished they're earning loads of money they're good looking they're smart you know they're fit whatever else and i just feel kind of inferior but then i think yeah take you in the fight and it was my way of feeling better about myself and he laughed he goes 
I do exactly the same thing about, but like, but I can play better music than them. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, whatever you're doing, you can use your skill as a, as a kind of emotional crutch. Probably most mm-hmm. of us do. Yeah, I would think so. What do you think happens when, when that's not available anymore? Do we outgrow the emotional crutch? Mm, I think sometimes we do and sometimes it just slides somewhere else. I think probably we have a, I mean, I, I use that as an example because it's pretty clear. It's slightly amusing. It applies to a lot of martial artists. And yeah, for, for those reasons. But I don't think it's necessarily the only only part of my life where I might do something like that. Hmm. And the attachment to who we think we should be and who we think we are, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wasn't only a martial artist. You know, I had all these other senses of myself which which were as much crutch as real i would say Mm, mm. and still do so now it's just a i think it's an aspect of of maturity or wisdom or something like that is to to be a little bit better at noticing them and questioning them Mm. yeah and and going oh it's okay if that's completely wrong and completely not true oh all right Well, you do get to a point where you're kind of like, ah. (laughs) I mean, I think you, I don't know about you, but I know for me, you, you, I get to a point with certain types of internal exploration where you're just like, yeah, I don't feel like I really need to go pick that apart anymore. You know, you're like, ah. Or, you know, Andy Warhol um, famously said that. Um, if you just ask yourself the question, so what mm-hmm. about most things, it'll make your life a lot easier, you know, like, mm-hmm. Oh, my mother didn't love me. So what, you know, or, mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't make, you know, enough money last year. So what? And, you know, it's, it's, that can be really, that can seem like a really great thing to be able to do for people who live in certain levels of privilege which mm-hmm. I do, which I would venture that to say that you do as well. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely, and when I first heard this when I was younger, I was like, it's kind of an, an asshole thing to say. But as I've gotten older and just kind of more tired <laughs> earlier, <laughs> it that does come up more often. You're kind of like, ah, so what? So that's sort of like, you know, oh, so that's not really true about me. Ah, so what? I think it's one of the nice, the the things that I enjoy about getting older is yeah. that less of these things matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was that. Kind of, you kind of, I, there's a there's a point in, I think it's a, it's a difficult point for a martial artist. Certainly it hasn't been easy for me where you just kind of, you recognize that the, the body which you've been training so hard is going to fall apart. Has started falling apart, <laughs> <laughs> and at some point will completely fall apart. And you have to either you now you, you you can do your best to maintain it, but mm-hmm. if if you get angry or upset about that, that's just miserable. I mean, yeah, you can't yeah. you can't win this one. So you may as well just go. So what? Yeah. And, you know. 
and maybe look look at things which are bigger. Yeah, true. Bigger true. Older. What you mentioned earlier um, about your first Tai Chi teacher um, who had some questionable ethics, mm -hmm. which is an interesting point because you teach martial arts, I teach martial arts. My training group right now is quite small. Mm -hmm. um, and there haven't been too many, I haven't been confronted with this too often. Um, those questions of, you know, how do you, how do you walk a line between being a good teacher, um, between just being a human who reacts to stuff? Mm -hmm. um, what is ethical? What do you what do you share with students, and what do you withhold, and 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 why do you withhold things, and what's your experience with that, in five mm -hmm. words or less? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I think there's there's all kinds of different different layers to that. So my that original teacher, I suppose the it wasn't quite cult like. But it was nearly cult like. I mean, he used the uh, essentially. I think he was. He was. A, this was not evident to me when I started because I was this awkward, innocent fifteen-year-old. But he was a serial serial seducer of his students. Mm. And you know, I'm sure he had various kinds of of uh, you know of justification for it in his head. Mm. But I don't think it's necessarily great. Many, many ways, possibly the whole or a lot of the way the school may have been structured would be to create an atmosphere in which that was possible because of the kind of slow hypnotic sensitivity aspects of, of the way we, we practiced. But I think um, there's there's different levels or layers of what I think is is good or ethical, and I think it's. One of my friends, not a martial artist particularly, um, he said that the, the role of a leader is to create leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think for many people in martial arts and martial arts teachers, the role of a martial arts teacher is to create followers. And for me, that's not ethical. Right, and I agree with especially you. if you're doing something which is related to self-defense uh, and some people that I've introduced to, like Kaya, she's really articulated this beautifully many times is that uh, it really makes no sense when it's self-defense is about being able to say no to a situation that you force your will on the student to do it the way you want them to yeah so that the the agency of the student is really really important and shouldn't be kind of yeah it shouldn't be trampled upon at the same time you have this question of you know, how do you how do you get people to do things which are didn't think they could do before. Kai's idea is you make it so fun that they want to join in. Like, yeah. Can I can I do that with you too? Yeah. And I think this is actually you know, this is what you see in say healthy sports martial arts. Like I love Brazilian Jiu Jitsu because it's fun for me. It's horrible in that like I feel broken afterwards. But actually when I'm playing, it doesn't matter if I'm winning or losing, it's fun most mm -hmm. of the time. Um and most of the time I'm losing. But still fun. It's like yes, mm -hmm. it, it's it's this three-dimensional chess, and I want to play. Right. And it's you know it, it's this physically engaging three-dimensional chess, and I want to play. So yeah, so I think there's that the ethics of the agency of 
of the people. And then there's the ethics, which is related to slightly differently, which is, I think, the, uh, the, the use of information and hierarchy in, in tricky ways. So like, like when, if, if you're a good student, I will teach you this secret piece of information kind of thing. Or if you pay me X, I will teach you this secret piece of information. And there are times when yeah, it is, as you say, appropriate or inappropriate to share certain kinds of information or certain exercises or certain skills. And they shouldn't necessarily all be out there. But it's not because they're super powerful or super deadly or whatever, or very rarely. Um, it's just because it wouldn't do the person any good. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, I've done it with with my students who are all still fairly new to ninjutsu. Um, there's things that I can't show them because they don't have the foundation skills yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, yeah, we, I, you know, I really want to teach them throws, but mm-hmm. first we have to learn falls, mm-hmm. you know, so that's not, I'm not trying to withhold information. I'm trying to prepare them. Mm-hmm. So to make sure that they train safely. Yeah. So I, th- but I definitely, um, I mean, that's, that's a big part of ninjutsu is the whole, all the secret teachings. Mm-hmm. You know, the secret scrolls that everybody mm-hmm. knows about somehow, mm-hmm. even though they're secret. <laughs> There's uh and, and that whole like and I did this. My students confronted me um, or challenged me, which I which was great. I was really grateful for it. In ninjutsu, the female ninja, of course, are called kunoichi. Mm-hmm. And one of my students said, how come when you send us emails or messages you address it, hey, ninjas, when we're mostly women, why aren't you calling us Kunoichi? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, because you have to earn it. And she said, well, how do we know when we earn it? Is there like a test or something? And I said, no, your teacher just decides. And then I listened to myself and I was like, what kind of a dick am I? Like, <laughs> <laughs> they are Kunoichi. Well, what is it? Now I'm doing that whole thing that I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's it. that was an interesting lesson in how easy... Um, your ego can kind of pull you over into that kind of nonsense Mm -hmm. and that, and I've certainly met, um, I've met martial artists who are very much into the cult status hierarchy thing, Mm -hmm. um, which I find very exhausting. You know, if you're the person who wants everyone to treat you like a cult leader, um, fine, but you also, there's a lot of stuff you have to keep up on your end too. You know, it's smoke and mirrors takes a lot of work in my mind. Yeah, yeah. So I'm too lazy for that kind of stuff. I also really ethically, I honestly, I really don't believe in it. I agree with you on that score. But it was an interesting moment with my students to realize like, oh, I just, I just slipped over to the other side for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, thank goodness they were there to pull me back. Because mm-hmm. who knows how far down that hill I would have gone. Yeah, I don't know. But it's a, it's, it's, it's such an interesting question to practice ethically and morally and, and ask yourself all the time, am I doing the right thing by these people who are trusting me mm-hmm. um, with their time and their energy and their money and, um, and their bodies, mm-hmm. you know, and their perceptions, you know, how do I honor that and respect that in a way that that yeah that's ethical Mm -hmm. you know to me that's a constant question 
it's fun. You know, there's a level of fun that I have certainly like when my students test for their next belt, um, I put on my more formal samurai gear because that's part mm. of our tradition mm. um, in the school that I come from. You know, and it's impressive looking. I think you've seen me dressed up in that, in in all my stuff once or twice. Um, especially if I have my sword with me, you know, it's very impressive looking. And I know it's impressive looking. It's kind of fun to scowl at people. They're like, okay, now I'm being serious. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's just not okay to do that all the time. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think one, there, there's a, so you're talking about gradings and I think there's a, a value in, in ritual moments as well. Yeah. I mean, every moment is kind of equally amazing and, and precious in some ways, but in terms of the way our, our brains and minds and, and work, then I think there's something particular about creating moments which are somehow special. Not something I'm particularly or deliberately special. I'm very good at. <laughs> kind of like I think theatrical and, and, and there's a, a range of skills which I never developed. Yeah, it can it it can sometimes feel theatrical, but I think for me, the aspect of ritual that we use when we train in ninjutsu is um, it just sort it sort of just helps switch your brain into a different mode. Mm-hmm. You know, like okay, right now is the time for me to stay very focused. Granted, we're in a special place. We're wearing our we train in our full gi, mm-hmm. um, our full uniforms. But to also bow in, to also, you know, do the ritual, the, the short opening ritual and the short closing ritual we have is something that I encourage with my students. And of course, we follow it every time um, because I feel it helps. It just helps remind us, you know, this is something that we're doing. It helps us respect what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to just kind of like, you know, jumping in and starting to fly around with fists and feet and mm. um, which can get dangerous. So and that's what I'm always concerned about. Maybe that's the sort of like the way I was socialized to be maternal, you know, mm. also socialized to be very American and not wanting to be sued most of the time. Yeah, well, that's definitely an issue for modern martial artists. Yeah. So I don't know. I find the ritual, um, it's nice. You know, it's kind of like, to me, it's really similar to the ritual of, you know, don't eat, especially now with home offices and everything and these corona times, like, don't eat in the same place where you work. Mm -hmm. You know, stop your work, turn off your phone, go to another part of the table, in my case, because I just have one table to work and eat at, or... Um, you know, go into the dining room or kitchen, but, you know, demarcate those times. And even though, like for me, I like to incorporate aspects of martial art in every part of my life, as I know you do too, but this is the training time. Mm. You know, when I'm training with other people and I like my brain to kind of, you know, get that signal. Yes. Through that. So I don't know. I'm I'm for the ritual. I like it. As long well, as it's not like, about, like this is a, a simple that what you're talking for me is what you're talking about is like a, a very special, not special. It's a simple, um, pragmatic ritual. So yeah. it's, uh, 
when I studied NLP, it was like, oh, that was a revelation to me. Oh, these are anchors. These are things which go, all right, time to go into this state. Right. Which remind you, and then you have the whole neurons which wire together, pass together, wire together, and so on. Mm-hmm. So associating these things, I think, is, is a way of deepening and accelerating the way you learn, for sure. Mm-hmm. And as well as creating, presumably, a space which can be uh, safer for more intense work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think elevating that ritual to a bunch of other unnecessary stuff is is when when a teacher may start to cross over to the dark side. Yeah. We live in this world where there's a huge amount of information out there, and and this idea that okay, we send out an app or an online course or whatever it may be. And it may bring certain people back to us. But you also described it as opening a door. And it really, it's not, you know, it's absolutely fine for me if someone reads something I've written or does an exercise they've seen me teach or whatever it is. And as a result, go off and do something else completely different altogether. But kind of put some in a, in a direction which allows them to, to kind of, to, to explore the richness of breath, movement, and attention, as mm-hmm. opposed to be constantly looking for outside fixes. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's not the funnel isn't necessarily to bring people back to me. It's to bring people back to themselves. Some of them might come to me, but not any. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that is what it's for. I mean, I, I think that's what, what martial arts is for, you know? And I think that's what yoga is for. I think that's what religion in so, some way was supposed to be for. Um, you know, it, bringing people back to themselves, becoming more and more yourself. To me, that's sort of the, that's kind of the whole point of life, you know, if there is any kind of point, this would be the point, you know, how can you become as fully yourself as you possibly can? How big can you bloom according to you and according to who you are? You know, that doesn't mean, you know, can you, can you, you know, if you're like a giant extrovert personality, then you're blooming big. Now I feel like I'm on a Ted talk using like dumb cliche words, but that, that might be something really huge and loud. And if you're more, a more introverted person or you're a mixture that might be small, it, you know, it's unique. It looks like you, the, the, the tulip is as beautiful as the rose, mm-hmm. you know, they're just different flowers. Yeah, well, you're saying I'm a half Dutch, half English, so tulips and roses. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. If you want. <laughs> ah, nice. Well, there you go. See, it was all a very magical conversation in the end. <laughs> How did we do that, martial arts? <laughs> One of the things I like about training with Ed and talking shop with him is his no-nonsense attitude about martial arts. There's humor, but there's also an appreciation for the arts themselves without getting into competitiveness, hagiographies, or whose history is more legit, or any of that nonsense. It's just an appreciation for body dynamics and human movement expressed through martial arts, even though my martial art is better than his. 
Just kidding. You can learn more about Edward and his Bagua practice through his website, books, classes, and videos, accessible through Patreon. And you can find all of this through a single portal. Just visit ibagua.com. That's i-b-a-g-u-a.com. Pretty Deadly Self-Defense is a self-defense program based in Berlin, but with coaches and trainers in a growing number of cities in Europe and around the world. If you want to join us just to take a course or to become a coach, a trainer, or even offer Pretty Deadly in your school or studio, let us know through our website at prettydeadlyselfdefense.com or find us through our app. Just search for Pretty Deadly Self-Defense in your favorite app store and download for free. And remember that all of our paid programs fund our volunteer work. So when you empower yourself, you're actually empowering another woman, too. Thanks for being here. I'm Susie Collick, and you've been listening to the Pretty Deadly Podcast. See you next week.